0: So this morning, we are going to talk about three of Peter's final commands in this letter. As we close out uh, this epistle, 1 Peter, we're going to talk about Peter's last last words in his epistle. And last words are kind of important, aren't they? Um, And I've called this sermon, uh, What Good Sheep Do, because Previously, Peter was talking about the flock of God. Well, that's us. We're the flock of God. I realized afterwards that sheep might come across as a bit negative. That Christians are just sheep. They they're brainless and mindless, and they just fo- they follow whatever. But that's not what I meant. I meant it as what good disciples do. We're sheep, as in we're part of God's flock. And so, this is these commands from Peter are about what good disciples do. Three really important commands next week. Uh, Andrew's going to come and he's going to preach and he's going to do he's going to take a step back as we finalize our series and look at the big themes in first Peter. but this morning we're going to look at these three final commands, three things from Peter this morning. Firstly, that the flock, good disciples, they submit to God because he cares for them. Good disciples submit to God because he cares for them. Good disciples, the flock, they they resist the devil because he wants to devour them. They resist. And lastly, the flock needs to repeat, trust God's promises so they can persevere. So they can persevere. And so Peter begins in... Chapter five and verse six, and he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The first thing that Peter says, the first command there is, humble yourselves, therefore. That therefore we always need to go. What just came? What just got said before that he's referring yourselves? And and the truth there is from Proverbs that Peter cites that says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. To the humble, and so in light of that truth, humble yourselves before God under His mighty hand. We need to just ask for a second. What is humility? What is humility? Maybe you've heard that wonderful quote that sometimes is attributed to C.S. Lewis, but it's actually, I think it's Rick Warren who actually wrote it. Uh, big time gap there. I'm not sure how those, but oftentimes if you, if you see that quote pop up and, in, your, in your Instagram feed or your Facebook feed, that is attributed to C.S. Lewis. But it says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, thinking that you're worse than you are, but it's actually thinking of yourself less, spending less time thinking about yourself. And that's a good starting place for humility, because humility is having a just view of ourselves, not thinking more of ourselves than we ought, not thinking less of ourselves than we ought. We understand both our strengths and our weaknesses, but humility doesn't stop there. It's not only just thinking about ourselves less, it's thinking about God. And that's what Peter says to us here in verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. Humility begins with how we relate to God. Humility begins with how we relate to God. We understand that he's the creator and that we are the creation. He's God and we're not. There's a wonderful quote in the movie Pirates of the Caribbean where the pirate Jack Sparrow is on the ship with... The other chap, whose name I can't remember all of a sudden, is played by Orlando Bloom, and they're having an argument, and Jack Sparrow says, I knew your father. He was a good man, good pirate. And the other guy's offended, and he says, No, he wasn't. He wasn't a pirate. He was an upstanding citizen. And they're about to get into a duel, and Jack Sparrow spins the, the, the wheel, and the, the jib, the boom, flies across and catches Orlando Bloom by surprise, and he's, he's hanging from the boom. And Jack Sparrow says, Now that I've got you there, listen up. There's only two rules that matter in life. What a man can do and what he can't do. What a man can do and what he can't do. And that's humility in that sense. We understand what God has allowed us to do and what we can't do. And we also understand who he is and what he does. We understand that creator-creature relationship. But humility also recognizes, at the end of the day, that there's nothing that we can do to take God's place. We understand that we can't earn his love either. Humility results in a second view of God, is that he's holy, apart, perfect, and that we're sinners. We've rebelled against him. And there's nothing we can do to make that right. And so humility ultimately accepts Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, what he's done to make us right with God. Humility begins with how we relate with God. In a sense, humility is the practical outworking of the fear of God. Sometimes we see that phrase in Scripture. It occurs a lot in the Old Testament. Sometimes in the New Testament as well. And we struggle sometimes to understand, what does it mean to have the fear of God? It's a strange phrase, but it's always associated with positive things in Scripture. There's blessings for those who fear God, but fear is a bad thing, right? Can I suggest to you that, actually, the fear of God in practice looks like humility. It looks like understanding who we are and who God is and having a just understanding about that. That's why the the in Proverbs, the, the wise man writes, Solomon writes, the reward for humility and the fear of God is riches and honor and life. They're intertwined. He puts them together and they have The same reward, riches, honor, and life. Humility is the fear of God in practice. That's why Peter says, back in chapter 1 and verse 17, he says, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile as children of God, who judges impartially. We're children of God. It's about us, and it's about who we are and who God is Humility is the practical outworking of the fear of God. Humility doesn't boast. Humility doesn't boast. Not because, as we said before, it does recognize our strengths and weaknesses. But it knows at the end of the day that even in success, there are so many other variables outside of our own control that we don't, we can't do anything about that, they could have changed the outcome. Even success is not of our own doing, it's from God. And so, humility doesn't boast in anything we've done. Scripture says that humility boasts only in the cross of Christ, humility boasts in what Jesus has done. Again, who we are and who God is. And so Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore submit to God under his mighty hand. Under his mighty hand. And so on the contrary, humility leaves the self-exaltation to God. That's why it's, Peter says, at the proper time, he will exalt you. We humble ourselves in this life, knowing that in the next life, he's going to reward us, exalt us. But I suggest to you that humility once again is at the most basic level is coming before God and admitting that we are sinners in need of his grace which he's shown to us in Christ Jesus. How do we apply that what is it how do you actually do how do you humble yourself? It's a command here. How do we actually go about doing that? Peter gives us a really good application in verse 7. He says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter isn't just calling us to humble ourselves to any old deity. No, he's calling us to, call, to to humble ourselves underneath the God of the Bible, revealed in Jesus Christ, who is both, has a mighty hand. It's about his control. He's active in his world. He's sovereign. He's in charge. But he also cares for us. He's good. He's loving. So Peter says, humble yourselves to that God by casting all of your cares upon him because he does care for you. Can I, can I give you a personal example about what that humbling looks like, casting your cares upon him? I'm having to retake my driver's license here in England and it's very frustrating for me. I've been driving for a while. I've driven in three different countries in France and America and now England. I was able to drive here on my American license for a year. And now I'm having to retake a license again. And it, it, it's, it's, it's worrying me. I, I'm anxious about it. I've made long road trips with screaming kids in the car. And now I have to do the driving lesson again. See, I'm getting all worked about, up about it right now, just talking about it. And actually, I have to come back to the Lord and humble myself before him and cast my cares upon him, and say, Lord, you're in charge. The timing of this, whether I pass or fail, all of those things, I'm going to keep coming back to you. And it's not a one and done kind of thing. It's a, all right, I could feel the worry coming up. Okay, I've been singing Great is Thy Faithfulness. That's been my go-to hymn the last week. The week before that, it was Matthew 6. Seek first the kingdom and all these other things. God is going to take care of you. It's asking my wife to pray for me. It's it's going back to the Lord in prayer. It's every day, every time, every second. Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. That's what that looks like in practice. That's humility in practice in casting our cares upon him. And friends, can I suggest to you that that feels a little bit like dying? It feels a little bit like dying. Because when we cast our cares upon him, we ultimately have to cast our own self-sufficiency, our own independence at his feet as well. And I don't want to do that. No, I'm self-sufficient. I'm independent. I don't need anybody. I don't need anybody. So sometimes we we keep those things tight. We hold them tight. We hold on to that knot in our stomach. We hold on to that, that weight on our shoulders because in the back of our minds, maybe even subconsciously, we don't want to let go of that independence and peter says humble yourselves humble yourselves before god because he cares for you christian is there an area of your life where you're tempted to say to god hands off i got this do you hold on to that worry to that anxiety to that knot in your stomach because you 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 got you got this He's got it. You can give it to him. He's good and he's in charge. He's worth trusting. He's worth trusting. Cast your cares upon him. Keep at it. Friend, can I, can I suggest to you this morning that whether you call yourself a secular humanist or, or if you're of a, of a Hindu persuasion, you believe in the karmic cycle, that both of those things ultimately come down to our own action. If you're a secular humanist, you believe that we have the right to define ourselves. It's up to you to define who you are. What a weight. If you believe in karma, it means that everything you do ultimately comes back, good or bad, to haunt you. And we all do bad stuff. At the end of the day, that results in fear. And stress, worry, shame. Not so with Jesus. Not so with the God of the Bible, the God of grace, who says, no, I'm not going to count in Christ when you accept Jesus. I'm not going to count anything you've done against you. Even your good stuff isn't good enough. No, you get the perfection of Jesus. That's what I see when you trust Jesus. Friend, turn to Jesus. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. He's gentle and lowly of heart. And in him, you could find rest and peace and joy. The flock should submit to God because he cares for them, says Peter. The second thing that he says is that the flock should resist the devil because he seeks to devour them. Good disciples take a stand. They resist the devil because he's going to devour them. Look at what Peter says in verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The devil, our adversary, the one who is against us. Remember, Peter refers to the church as the flock of God just several verses earlier. The devil is the predator, and he's seeking someone to prey upon. He prowls around. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, in regard to unresolved anger, he says, don't give the devil a foothold. He's looking for a way in, a way to break down the barriers and get in and get at whoever he can. Paul says again in Ephesians, he says, stand against the schemes of the devil. And in 2 Corinthians, he talks about being outwitted by Satan and ignorant of his designs. He's a lion who prowls. He's wily. He's looking. He's seeking whom he may devour. What are some of the ways that he seeks to devour us? The first corresponds to this first command in verse 8. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. You see, in this spiritual fight, because it is a spiritual fight, Satan looks for areas where sin creeps into our lives unnoticed. Where there are sins, sometimes we call them acceptable sins, sins which we tolerate in ourselves. Peter says be sober minded be watchful look out for those hidden those secrets those acceptable sins we talked about one a minute ago in Ephesians chapter 4 unresolved anger that turns in it ages into bitterness don't give the devil a foothold do you have anger in your life do you have bitterness in your life about past things that situation might be finished But that bitterness still presents a foothold for the devil in your life. He's got a foot in the door, as it were. Don't give him that foothold. Unresolved anger. The other one that Peter addresses here, the truly obvious in verse 6, is pride. The opposite of humility. Pride sneaks in. It sneaks in. It gives the devil a foothold. Humble yourselves. And we do that by casting our cares upon the one who loves us and who's in control. The second way that the devil seeks to devour us is by undermining our faith. That's what Peter says in verse nine, in that second command, resist him firm in your faith. Resist him firm in your faith. That picture of being firm, of standing firm, ready for action, not able to be bowled over, is a favorite image in the New Testament. Paul says again in Galatians chapter 5, stand firm and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. He says, take up the whole armor of God and stand firm against the devil's schemes. And he says in Philippians chapter 4, in view of our heavenly citizenship, because we're spiritual exiles, in view of our heavenly citizenship, in view of the reward that awaits, stand firm. That's the command. Stand firm. Resist the devil. And the devil seeks to devour us by undermining that faith. How does he do that? How does he do that? Can I suggest to you that he does that by getting us to indulge in self pity. By getting us to indulge in self pity. That's why he says in verse 9 resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by the brotherhood throughout the world. You see, we need to know that we are not the only ones suffering. We need to know that we're not the only ones suffering. And the reality is that self-pity is the response of wounded pride. Boasting is what pride does when it's had success. Oh, I'm the best. I've done this all on my own. But self-pity, poor me, look at me, oh, is the wounded, the expression of wounded pride. And that's what Peter tells us to fight against here. And the way that he tells us to fight against it is that we need to know that others are also suffering for their faith. That's why we prayed for persecuted Christians earlier in the service. Can I encourage you this week, really practically, have a look at at, at this organization, Voice of the Martyrs, or Release International, as they're known in in, in this country. Read up, pray for countries where believers are suffering for their faith. Look at a a biography. Read a biography of someone who suffered for their faith. Richard Wormbrand is one who I've read suffered under the communist regime, was persecuted for his faith. We need to know how others are suffering, that we're not suffering, oh, poor me, all by myself, suffering for my faith. No, 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 there are many who love and trust Jesus who are suffering for their faith as well so that we can fight self-pity, so that we can be humble. Can I suggest to you that resisting the devil and humbling ourselves go hand in hand? That's what James says in chapter four and verses seven and eight. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He puts those things all together in a sense. As you humble, submit, draw near to God, you naturally start to resist the devil naturally start to resist the devil. And so friends, once again, humble yourselves and resist the devil. Be aware, be alert. Christian, do you know where the devil tends to catch you out? Do you know where he tends to catch you out? Have you noticed a pattern of sin in your life? Sometimes we call those besetting sins, the things which we regularly struggle with. Remember, the devil is crafty. He's a schemer. We need to be sober-minded. We need to identify those things in our life so that we, by the power of the Spirit, can put them to death. So that we can put them to death. Do you have a tendency to self-pity? Do you play the victim? Sometimes we play the victim in different ways. Things we suffered in the past, things we're suffering currently. And we use them as an excuse to get our own way. An excuse for our wrong behavior now. Friend, don't give the devil the foothold of self-pity. Because self-pity is so often a way to fling the door wide open to all other kinds of sin. If you have self-pity in your life this morning, get rid of it. Cast it at the foot of the cross. And let Jesus deal with it. Friend, have you ever sensed that there is something more in this world than what you can see, hear, feel, and touch? Can I suggest to you that there is a spiritual fight going on? There's the devil, and he's the adversary. He is against you and I. And there's God revealed in Jesus Christ, the lover of your soul. And this battle is a battle for your soul. And it's a battle for what will happen in eternity. Can I urge you this morning to turn to Jesus. If you've sensed that there is something more in this life, turn to Jesus. He wants to know you. And he wants you to know him. The flock should resist the devil because he's seeking to devour them. The third thing that Peter doesn't command, but demonstrates for us is that the flock needs to repeat God's promises so they can persevere. Uh, Peter demonstrates that by repeating these truths for us. He says in verses 10 and 11, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter demonstrates for us here that we need to repeat, to trust God's promises so that we can persevere in suffering. And so three things that he tells us we need to remember. The first is this. Remember our perspective. That's what he says in verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while. A little while. That's how he refers to this time on earth, 80, 90, maybe 100 years, a little while. Is that your perspective of this life on earth? It's a little while. It's what leads Paul to say in Romans chapter 8. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us humility about ourselves a just view of ourselves and who god is ultimately re- re- results in a just view of now this life this life is not all there is in fact it's relatively small slice of eternity in a skew not worth comparing says paul remember our perspective we look forward to humility. That's why Peter says back in chapter 1 and verses 6 and 7 that sometimes suffering is necessary in this life so that our faith can be refined like a precious metal more valuable than gold. Remember our perspective. Remember the giver. Peter calls him here This wonderful name, the God of all grace. Not just the God who gives a gift once in a while. No, the God who gives every good gift, who gives all grace, who has given us salvation in Jesus Christ and better yet has left us his spirit, sent his spirit to be in us. Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us, and we have the spirit who is in us he unites us and makes us into the church, and we have this marvelous future as the bride of Christ together, looking forward to that wonderful wedding feast in heaven, the God of all grace. That's why James says that he that, that every good and perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights, with whom there is no change and no variation. He gives every good gift. And that's why Peter says twice in his letter, we can entrust ourselves to him because he is the one who judges justly. He knows our true motives, our true actions. And he's also the faithful creator. He made us. He knows us. We can entrust ourselves to him, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, I couldn't help thinking about that verb. He called us. It's, he spoke. He called. It's like a shepherd who calls his sheep. And I was reminded of what Jesus says about himself in John chapter 10. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. He has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. If you have trusted Jesus this morning, that's true for you. You have been called to that eternal glory, and no one can snatch you out of his hand. That future is certain. And when we get there, what's he going to do? Peter says this, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, and he will himself... Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I love that, that he himself, he in person, not some emissary, not someone in his place, no, God himself, in all of his wondrous glory, will establish us, will heal us, will make everything right. The Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 3, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. He himself, in person, will see all of him, all of his glory, and will be with him. Can you imagine, friends, arriving to heaven? looking into the face of jesus the face of perfect love and all fear all anxiety all shame all of that residual dirt washed away at peace joy and not just hope but that hope that that hope that is blossomed into that assuredness of all eternity with jesus he's here it's happened fight is over he's won he himself in person remember that the god of grace remember our perspective remember the giver and remember to worship peter closes in verse 11 with that hymn of doxology to him be the dominion forever and ever to him be the dominion forever and ever there's something about worship whether it's sung worship or written worship Meditating on the words of Scripture, whether it's in creation, wherever that is, there's something about worship that leads us to persevere, that helps us to keep going. It helps us to keep going. Christian, remember his promises. Sing them. Write them down. Memorize them. Put them on your bathroom mirror. Put them on the steering wheel of your car. Wherever you need, whatever you're wrestling with, Find the right verse, memorize it, get it in your mind, say it to yourself. I was singing Great is Thy Faithfulness this last week. It was what my soul needed to hear. It was what my heart needed to keep trusting, to keep casting anxiety. That's your ammunition in the midst of suffering, in the midst of worry. Friend, if, if you are listening along and you have, wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, can I ask you a really honest question? What is it that you turn to, that you remind yourself of in times of trouble to keep going? What is it? What do you turn to for hope? Because in Jesus, you have a well of hope that will never run dry. It just doesn't. There's always more. There's always more water for the dry deserts of our souls, even in the midst of lockdown, even in the midst of pandemic, even in the midst of economic downturn, even in the midst of personal tragedy, whatever that is, there's always hope there because he cares for you.